So if you were here last week, or even if you weren't here last week, Isaiah 53, yeah, grab those Bibles. All about some Bibles up in here. We often don't have the scripture up on the screen. It's not because we're trying to, uh, you know, you know, uh, starve you of the scriptures. We want you to have your own Bible, your own Bible app that you're using. Um, So Isaiah 53 last week was the suffering servant, right? You have Israel that has been in in bondage. They've been in captivity and, and Yahweh, God is delivering them out of their captivity. But like we've said the whole series, right? Israel's biggest problem isn't their circumstance, right? Israel's biggest problem is not their geography, right? As if, if God were to zoom down here and grab Josh here out of his seat and then go take him to Hawaii, as wonderful as that would be, right, Josh? Josh like, yeah, Lord, please come Lord Jesus, right? As wonderful as that would be, that's still not going to deal with Josh's biggest problem. Thanks for being an example, Josh, right? His sin, your sin, my sin, Israel's sin is our biggest problem, not our circumstance, okay? So at the end of chapter 48, there's this little phrase that he drops in there. It says, there is no peace for the wicked. Which, you know, that word, the wicked, for, you know, for sinners. For, frankly, for me and you. There is no peace for the wicked. And so Isaiah 53 is a portrait, a gut-wrenching portrait of what it costs to go and win that peace for the wicked. So what we're looking at today is, so last week was what what Jesus went through, right? And this is all prophetic. Remember, this is written, you know, uh, 700 BC. So this is 700 years before Jesus. We have a detailed account of how Jesus is going to suffer for sin, how he's going to pay for sin. So in chapter 53, we have that. In chapter 54 and 55, which is what we're in today, we get the results, right? The outcome of what Jesus does. So, right, he accomplishes this work of redemption. Well, what does that do for us? And today we look at some of the things, the initial things that Isaiah wants us to see coming out of Isaiah 53. So this is a, this is a, a beautiful section meant to encourage us about our new identity, our new place that we have in Jesus, right? By faith in him. So let me pray for us. Because to be honest, this is one of the reasons I love preaching the Bible, is we're going to read this section, and it's going to be very odd to you, right? Sometimes when you read the Bible, most times when you read the Bible, it's very strange, which is a good thing, because it makes you go, wait a second, what is God trying to teach me here? So this is one of those sections, but it's this beautiful encouragement of what we get because of what Jesus has done, okay? So basically, it's the picture of peace given When there is no peace for the wicked, Jesus goes, gets that peace, and now we get a picture of how that peace plays out. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into 54. Heavenly Father, we come this morning as a people in need of peace. We we realize that you've gone to, to win this peace. You've gone to give us this peace that Jesus has laid down his life. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended to the throne. He is actively giving us this life that he has offered. Would you teach us today just a little bit more about what that life looks like and how we are supposed to respond? Lord, we need your help. We are weak. We are distracted. God, would you teach us about how we can enjoy this life that the suffering servant Jesus came for us to have? 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to see three things. I'm going to give you that out of the gate. There's three things we're going to see. We're going to see a family. We're going to see a fortress. And we're going to see a feast. And we're getting this in Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55. Let us start by reading Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 10. Excuse me. Um, Let me read that for us. Let me dip the water. Start. You got to give me grace. This is the second time. You know, I'm having a lot lot of talking this morning. So here we go. Isaiah 54. (laughs) That didn't help. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. I'll get there. I'll get there. Just hang. It'll, it'll happen. Hang with me. Okay. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, and the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is the first part of the word of the Lord this morning. Okay, now reading that, I don't know if you were paying attention. This is, a, this is meant to be the fruit of the work of Jesus, the fruit of the work of the suffering servant. And what metaphors does he use? He uses these strange metaphors to us. We read this, this is really foreign. Go back to the beginning of this. It's very odd. He has two main pictures, a barren woman and a, and a rejected wife. Man, woohoo! Encouragement. I can just feel it coming, right? Okay, so let's look at this here. What is he doing here? Look look at verse one. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. What in the world is he saying? For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. What? Right, That's the proper response to that little reading is, huh? What I I you know I I I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you had that conversation like with your parents, right? The birds and the bees. This the conversation I'm talking about. Uh, where do babies come from, right? Was that mom and dad? Or was that in the locker room? Was that in family life education? I'm not sure where you had that conversation, but a little brief reading here is like, wait a second. Here is someone who did not go into labor. Not a uh, you know gynecologist here, but 
you know, I'm OB, but that seems to me like, a, you know, if she doesn't go into labor, there's no babies, right? So that, that is what we're meant to think. We're supposed to read that and go, okay, how does that work? So here's the reality. This is the good news, right? A family comes out of the work of Jesus. Jesus goes and he, he, he pays for our sin. He goes and takes on the iniquity of us all, right? Because there is no peace for the wicked. So what we're being shown here is this is a portrait of this shalom that comes, right? Shalom is not just a matter of removing conflict or just a matter of like, yo, peace, y'all, like I'm out of here or something. Like we, our use of this word peace is very linear. It's very flat and very mediocre. It just means the ceasing of conflict. In the Hebrew understanding, we talk about shalom, we are talking about something that encompasses the entirety of the life of the individual and the nation. It's this portrait of flourishing in the life of God. It's a portrait of being and living and walking as God has intended humanity to walk. So what we get here in this whole passage is a portrait of this shalom that comes. And the shalom is characterized first by being a family. So the portrait here is is that there is a mom and there is a bride. There is a mom and there is a bride, right? So this mom is a mom who has not gone through labor. She's actually barren. She's actually unable to have children, which by the way, you know, we, I, I've walked with a bunch of couples through infertility and through different things. This is a hard thing to walk in in our time. And to be honest, we don't even really value children that much. I think the average uh, number of children per household in America, right, is 1.7. 1.7. Okay, so this is in a culture, our culture, that doesn't even highly value having a multitude of children. Back in the day, back, back in this time, children was, that was your life. That was like retirement. That was like, you know, who are, who's going to work on the farm? Who's going to take care of you? Who's going to protect you? You want to have as many children as you possibly can, because that means provision, safety, life, richness, fullness. And what we're looking at is somebody who's unable to have children. So not only is that difficult because they don't get the pragmatic reality of having a big family, they also have the disgrace of being someone who's unable to have kids. And their culture was a big deal. And what Jesus is saying is, to that woman, sing. You get to sing. He comes to the woman who goes, I've pled with the Lord, I've pleaded with him, I've cried out, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. I can't have kids. And Jesus said, you should sing because I'm about to enlarge in your tent. I'm about to fill your house. You are going to have this beautiful, massive family. Look at verse two. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation stretch out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. All these empty cities are going to get filled up with all of the children of this big family that you're going to have. So there's a tension going on here. So there's this beautiful thing, this barren woman who's going to sing because she's going to have this multitude of kids, but we have to ask the question, where are these kids coming from? Like, she can't have kids. She hasn't had, gone through labor. So how is this happening? So I want to insert that question, that little, that little question of demise kind of underneath of that, because we're going to answer that when we get to the third point, right? When we get to our feast, we're going to see where all these kids are coming from. So there's two things that God does. He is, he is the one who is multiplying, but he's also the one who is lavishing his love. Look at the end. Look at verse 10. 
So the first thing is we had a barren wife. The second thing we have is a neglected wife, right? We have a really disturbing language in here where he says, look at verse, sorry, go to, go to verse 7 first. It'll put verse 10 in context. For a brief moment, I deserted you. What? Wait, why, why is he putting this in, a, in, a, in an encouragement section? For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. So, so he, we have a barren woman is the first metaphor that we're, we're working with. All of this is within this, this, this new family. The second metaphor we're giving is an unfaithful wife. Gosh. If you're going to write an encouragement, right? You're going to write your buddy, your friend, an encouragement letter. Are you going to use an adulterous wife as your working metaphor for encouragement? I mean, I'm, I'm probably not, personally, right? Like, I'm going to pick something about, you know, flowers and eagles and something really, like, fun and uplifting, right? Like, we like those passages. But here we are, and it's like, okay, this kind of is uncomfortable. We're talking about, like, pregnancy and barrenness, and now we're talking about, like, uh, I mean, the language here. Verse 6, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you? Why are we bringing this into this passage? Like, we just talked about the suffering servant last week. Why are we talking about this? There is no peace for the wicked, he says, at the end of chapter 48. Here, here's the portrait. I don't know if you've ever read the book Hosea. It's a whole book. It's a little, little one of the minor prophets. And he goes to this godly guy, this prophet of Israel. His name's Hosea. And he says, Hosea, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. He says, Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute. What? What? Why? Why would you do that? He says, I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute because what we're going to do here, Hosea, is your life is going to be a parable for the people of God. And what you see in the book of Hosea is over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, his wife goes and pursues her lovers. And Hosea goes and finds his wife in the brothel. He goes and finds his wife in another man's house. He goes and finds his wife in another man's house over and over and over again. Hosea is going to rescue, to pursue, to seek out his adulterous, unfaithful wife. And he's saying, Israel, I want you to watch because this is what you do to me, O people of God. Oh, man. Here's the thing. You and I want to dress up our sinfulness. We want to try and kind of, you know, put some makeup on it and kind of make it a little bit better. But he says, just, you know, this is what you are doing when you are pursuing other places of life, joy, hope, and fullness, you are committing spiritual adultery. So that gives us the context for why he's saying this. Look at verse 7. For a brief moment, I deserted you. So there's, there's, there's a, in, in modern day vernacular, when you're doing marital counseling, which I do, by the way, um, you know, text me if you need to, right? And when I do marital counseling, sometimes there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing called separation, where, you, where the husband and the wife take a step back from each other to pursue each other. Yeah, that's right. Healthy separation is meant to take a step back, to get some space, to make sure, okay, what are we doing here? What's the goal? Why are we doing this? How, what do we need to do to get healthy? And then let's move toward each other. 
Separation is something you do in order to work toward reconciliation. It's not a goal to like move apart. It's a goal to like get healthy, right? And so with God in mind, if God is the, the husband here, which he actually literally says, for your maker is your husband, one wife, right? Husband of one wife, one man, one woman. Just want to throw that. It's an extra freebie in the sermon today, right? When we talk about what is marriage, it's one woman and one man. God created them male and female, engendered beings, male and female, who are in relationship, male and female. Not trying to be controversial, just trying to say what the Bible says. We are made male and female, and we are made to be married to one person of the opposite sex. So that's a little freebie this morning. That's the metaphor that he uses in Isaiah. That's the metaphor he uses almost in the entirety of the Bible to refer to his relationship with his people is a husband, male, married to his wife, female, one man, one woman, male, female, he made them. That's the metaphor for all of the Bible for how we are to practice our relationship with God. So that's the portrait we have here. And the portrait we have here is that they, there's this separation that happens because she is in sin. She has wandered away from her covenant commitment. She has wandered away from her love relationship with God. And God in his grace has said, I stepped back for a second because who is God? God is the just judge of the entire universe, you know, however big you want to make it, all of existence, he is the one who is made to set things right. So for what he's doing is he basically says, I sent you into Babylon because you wanted other gods. You got what you wanted. How did it go? It didn't go well. And so I want you to note the, the comparison in verse 8 is overflowing anger for a moment. Now, this is not a, a rash husband who's like striking out at his wife. This is a God of perfection who is acting exactly correct in giving his wife circumstance for how she has cheated on him. Okay? So that's what's happening in this context. So, so God is doing two things. He's multiplying in the first analogy, but look, go to verse 10. That was a long way to get to verse 10. So let's get to verse 10. My steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace, of shalom, shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Here's the thing. You and I will read a section of scripture like this and we will get hung up going, whoa, whoa. He lashes out in anger for a moment. Separation. What? And we miss this. The point of this is, is that his, the wife was unfaithful and in her sin, he said, I will never give up on you. Which is what we're saying, by the way, when we covenant to one another in marriage, what we are saying is, is I will never give up on you. Even if there's adultery, we are saying that is the, 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 the strange non-path that we want to take. We want to work toward reconciliation, toward pursuing in love. So if you're in this room and you're a dude and you're thinking about getting married one day, I just want to put one word in the back of your mind, in the back of your heart to think about when we talk about what your call is in marriage as husbands, you know, the, the, one of the, the, if you want to simplify it all the way down, if I had to pick one word, I, I give the word pursuit. Your job, your calling is to relentlessly, as Christ loved, Ephesians 5 tells us, that you are to pursue. She's being unkind, pursue. She's not pursuing you, pursue. 
And we're talking emotionally, sexually, verbally, every way that you should pursue, you have been built by God and called and commanded of God to be a pursuer. That is your job, men, in this room, to pursue, right? Not to be passive, not to sit back and let her do like, well, she's the relational one. Nope. God's going to hold you men accountable for the health of your marriage. Pursue, pursue, pursue. Okay. Again, if you need to fill out a connect card so we can sit down to have a marital conversation, we can do that. Okay. So the results, right? The results of Jesus' work on the cross, the first result is a family, a multiplied family. A, and then a God who is lavishing love on us. The two things that God does in this family is he multiplies and he lavishes love. He lavishes love. He, he gives when he shouldn't give. He keeps laying down this, this covenantal love that he won't relent from giving. And so this is the first part of this piece that we see is a family. All right, second metaphor. We have a family, we have a fortress. Look at verse 11. Now I do want to say this. Let me just say this little thing. How many of you um, have lived in America during wartime? Uh, show of hands. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, a few of us, maybe, right? Depends on how you measure that. A few of us, Vietnam, maybe the Gulf War. But not, not everyone. Not everyone's like, oh, oh yeah, uh, that's me. You have to kind of go, ah, uh, have I? When you take that same survey in England, in 1950, they're going to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Oh, yeah, look out the window. You see that church? Yeah, they're, all the buildings right here have been bombed. Okay, I say that to say that when we hear about a family, we can resonate with some of that. We're like, okay, when we start talking about fortresses or fortified cities, we're kind of like, I mean, I don't really, re- that doesn't really heart resonate with me. It really, doesn't really jive with me as much. So I want to tell you, th- these are people who've been in captivity where if you don't have a fortified city, If you don't have a fortified city, people literally come in and kill and steal and take whatever they want. So these people are coming out of captivity and they're going like, do we have a place, a literal place to lay our head? So he is saying, right, that the fruit of the suffering servant, the first is a family, the second is a fortress. Verse 11, Isaiah 54, oh, afflicted one. This is referring to Jerusalem. Oh, afflicted one, storm tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. I will lay your foundations in sapphires. Um, I will make your, uh, I said this wrong in the last service. I will make your pinnacles of, oh, what'd she say? A, a gate? A agate. That's what it was. Agate. Okay. I will make your pinnacles of a gate. Any, or, or agate. There, I keep saying it. A gate. Agate. Um, your gates of carbuncles. I love gates of carbuncles. And all your walls of precious stones, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near to you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife, with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. That's the second part of the word of the Lord this morning. So 
what we have here is this portrait of God fortifying the city. He is taking Jerusalem. This is the same language that we see in John. John was probably reading Isaiah in his quiet times for real when he is like writing Revelation, right? So we see this, this, the same language in, in uh, Revelation 21, where we see the, the new Jerusalem coming down. The picture here is, listen, you were worried about your family relationships. You were worried about your family identity. I've taken care of that in Jesus. You have a family. The next thing they're worried about, what about our habitation? Where are we going to live? Where are we going to lay our head? Are are we going to have safety? Are we going to actually be able to find peace? And he is saying, yes, I am laying the stones in the foundations. I am building this city that cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. You will no longer have to worry or wonder about foes from the inside or foes from the outside, right? The the inner turmoil that the people are facing, he's dealing with who they are. He is dealing with the sin, the internal reality of their sin. He's also dealing with the external reality of the sin of others and how that comes in on the people of God. He is building them a place of safety and he's using language that they can understand. Hey, there's going to be a place where they are going to lie down in safety. And look at what characterizes this city. Look at verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So here's the portrait. You have this this walled city that's safe and secure, and no one can get in, and and the people who live there have this rest and peace about them because they know they are safe from their enemies. And the portrait we have here is that there are kids everywhere, right? It's a big family. And they're running around and they're playing and they're all running through the city with joy because they don't have to worry about, about dangerous people or robbers or kids. They don't have to worry about any of that. They're just running around in joy. And the very center of the city, in the center square, as all these kids are just filling the city, it, it, would, be a, it would be a wonder to you to just see all of these children. It's like being at my house. Right? Just all these kids everywhere running around. But then in the middle of the city, there sits God right? Probably Jesus. And what's he doing? He's teaching. All these little ones have gathered around and he is showing them what it means to walk with him and what it means to live out his righteousness. And they're sitting there and he is instructing them on what life is about and on what life looks like, that they are becoming people. Look at verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near to you. He's going to show them the right way to live. He's going to show them what shalom looks like. And here's the big lie, guys. Here's the big lies that we think that if we operate in all the things that we want to have, that that's going to make us happy. That's going to fulfill us. That we'll have this full and wonderful life if I can just be with that girl that I saw on the internet. If I can just have that car that I saw. If I can just have this thing or this thing or be with that person. If we just have these things, we think that we're going to find life and peace and happiness. And you know what? None of it it's true. And then when God says, here's how I want you to live, we go, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do, you mean, you mean uh, sexual intimacy with one woman for my whole life? I don't want to do that. You know, because, you know, someone else told me that there's some other ways to do things. And what God is saying, look, you keep crying to me about, about the agony in your soul. And yet I 
have laid out for you this beautiful path for how to experience peace, and you want none of it. Why? And just, you know, I'm preaching to my own heart too. He's saying, look, trust me. Trust that when I say don't do this thing, it's not because I'm trying to keep you from having a good time. I'm trying to help you walk in the way of peace. Man. So, when we have this fortress, the very center of this fortress, there's a, uh, a little Bible study going on. There's a little Sunday school happening in the midst of this fortified city where Jesus teaches his children about what it means to walk with him to trust in him. And there will be no more strife. And he even makes the point of like, look, I'm the designer of steel. I'm the one who, who sends out judging destroyers. I'm the guy who does all of that. He's the sovereign over all the universe. You don't have to worry about who's going to come through the gates. I got this, is what God is saying. So fruit one of the suffering servant is a family. Fruit two is a fortress. Fruit three is beginning of chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of, of the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that, that uh, did not know you, sh you shall run to, to you, excuse me, shall run to you, because the uh, Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. There we go. Finished it. Whew. Sorry, I don't have a lot of reading sometimes. Okay. So what's happening here? We have a family. We have a fortress. And now we have this feast. We have this feast. But it's a weird feast. It's a strange feast. Basically, this is like the best of all golden corrals, right? It's like all you can eat. Steak. And, you know, picture golden corral, but healthier. Right? Picture, um, what's that place? Something de Brazil. It's a Brazilian steakhouse. Somebody. Something. Texas de Brazil. That's what it is. Okay. It's a Brazilian steakhouse. It's like heaven there, by the way. I went there once. There's, this, is, this, is, this is actually is extra from the sermon, but just deal with it for a second. Okay. Like there are people who walk around with swords and on the swords are like, the whole sword is filled with filet mignon. This is not a joke. This is a real place, okay? I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I was sitting there and I was like, why are those gentlemen walking around with filet mignon swords? And they're like, Brett, you see this little coin on your table? If it's green, they just keep bringing it to you as much as you want. And I was like, what's that guy have? Doves? Oh, that's lamb. Wait, what's he got? Chicken? Huh, I'm in meat heaven. Ah. So I flipped my coin to green and the one gentleman, would you like more? I was like, yes. Can I have five? Sure. Five filet mignon. Like, this is heaven. Okay, it's kind of like that, but better. Because Texas Day Brazil is like $90 a person. Okay, which is why I had to have my friends take me there who had a little more money than me. They're like, hey, we'll take you out to dinner. I was like, 
90 bucks. That's a lot of money. It was worth it for them, I hope. Uh, I loved it. Anyway, focus people or me. Okay. Right? When's the last time you went out to a really great restaurant, right? Really nice restaurant. And before you even start the meal, they just go, you know, whatever you want is free. And you're like, oh, this is funny. Stop it. I'm like, no, no, just anything. I'm like, I mean, how many of you would even believe that? I wouldn't. I'd be like, okay, now I'm going to do that. And then you're going to give this huge bill at the end, right? Like, but that's what he's saying. Look what he's saying. This is supposed to be a ridiculous metaphor. Come, everyone who thirsts, which is everybody, by the way, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So who's invited to this feast? Pretty simple. This little Bible study methods. Verse one. Seems like everyone is invited. Touche. Correct. Come everyone who thirsts, which is meant to mean everyone who thirsts, which is all people. So we have a family, we have a fortress, and we have this feast. We are getting our answer to where are these kids coming from? Everyone is invited, right? We read, I read, I butchered the reading of it, but verse five, behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. So the portrait is you have barren Israel who is marching out of Babylon, who's unable to have kids, who's not been able to multiply like she thought she would multiply. You know, God told Israel, you're going to fill the earth. You're going to be as numerous as the stars, he told Abraham. So they're coming out of Babylon thinking like, man, well, that's, that's out the gate or out the window, excuse me, not agate. They're out the window, sorry, right? And, and here he's saying, no, they're going to they're gonna run to you. He is giving a call. He is going in the streets and saying, come. Who's hungry? Who's thirsty? Come eat. And who is going to respond to that call? There's this disturbing parable in Matthew chapter 22. I've referenced it a couple times in the last year. It's this parable about a wedding feast. Now, I don't know if you go to weddings. I do a lot of weddings, so I'm at a lot of weddings. And I got to tell you, it's this great thing. Someone else pays for it. They invite you to come. It's usually really good food. You're sitting there, and they're like, oh, what, what do we got today? You get this big cake there. That's usually very expensive. And you're just sitting there, and you're having this beautiful banquet. But there's this wedding banquet parable that Jesus tells where he's, they send out the invitations. No one shows up to the wedding. So the wedding house is like, oh, so, I mean, something, I mean, they must have, you know, maybe got lost in the mail. Maybe there's some problems with the U.S. Postal Service. Who knows? You know, I'm not sure what happened. So they send out messengers who go knock on the door and say, hey, come on. Come on, the, the, the feast is happening. Come, come on. They kill some of the messengers. And they say, we don't want to come to your party. Go away. And they kill some of the messengers. Well, the report goes back to the host. And he's obviously grieved. And he goes, go in the streets and invite anyone who will come to my party for my bride. We're going to celebrate. We are going to have this feast. And so he opens the doors wide. This is what we have here is that he is offering it to everyone. And he's offering it forever. It's everyone and every time, every person, every everlasting covenant. Look at verse three. Incline your ear 
Come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. So he's inviting all peoples. So hear me. So so Israel kept getting distracted thinking it was about them. And what he's saying is, no, there's going to be a banquet one day and a feast one day. We are gathered around and there's going to be people from all over the world. And Israel's sitting there going like, like, you mean like the Babylonians? Yeah. You mean the Assyrians? Yep. The Egyptians? Uh-huh. Which are, are the people who have oppressed Israel, right? Some of their enemies, some of their gravest enemies. And they're all going to be seated around the table. And they're, they're building this new family that's going to be this multi-ethnic, beautiful kingdom that's all gathered around the same table, around the same God who is the one who makes the family, who's the one who builds the city. He's the one who sets the table. He is the one who has done the work. He has opened wide the gates and he has called out to everyone, come who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come on. He's shouting out to the world. And you know what's crazy about this shout, church? is people hear the cry. They hear life is in Christ and they say, no thanks, we're good. I'll keep trying my dead end roads. I'll keep trying my my wells that run dry. I'll keep trying all the things that don't satisfy. I'll keep buying this bread that doesn't work. I'm good. And so part of what we see here is look at verse six. So everything we've seen to this point is mostly about what God does. God builds a family. God builds a city. God provides a feast. And then we have our response in verse six and seven. Have you ever heard of a thing called a chiasm? It's a little a uh, poetic slash literary device, a chiasm. Chi, the letter chi, is basically an X, right? And then a chiasm is the way they build the text where different lines of the text work down in a descending order and there's a middle point of the chiasm and then it works back out where there's parallelism for the first point, last point, second point, fourth point. You know, it works its way down. You get what I'm saying? The middle point of the chiasm in chapter 55, meaning the point of the passage is verses six and seven. Verses six and seven. So of everything we've heard, this is our response. So the result that Jesus garners for us is a family, a fortress, a feast. Our response to those things, our response to the call from verse one of chapter 55 is verses six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There is no peace for the wicked, God says. And so what he's saying is he's saying, come, and I'm going to give you that peace. I'm going to give you that shalom. I'm going to give you that life that you so long for. But look at what it says, verse 7 in particular. Let the wicked forsake his way. Listen, many of us want the feast. We want the banquet. I want the the, the meat on swords. I want to go to the buffet. I want that. And they say the only way that you can go to this feast, Brett, by the way, is you got to walk through those doors with somebody. You actually can't afford. The reason there's no cost to you is that the price is too high. Somebody else paid it for you. And unless you're with that person, you can't come to the table. Life eternal and the life of peace that God has does not come apart from relationship with him. 
The living one is the only way that we get to have a family and have a fortress and have a feast. Listen, there's a lot of people in this world who go, no, 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 I want a family. No, 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 I, I want a fortress. No, 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 I want a feast. No, I want all of that. Sign me up. Whoa, 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 whoa. You mean there's a string attached? You mean I got to like believe in God? You mean I got to like love God to get that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm good. I'm good. I, I like being my own God. I got my own way of doing things. I'm good. That, that is, hear, hear me, church, that is the reality that we find ourselves. I don't often read from commentaries, but I'm going to read this one. Consequently, there, is, there, is, there can be no unconditional call into blessing. Wickedness, objectively considered, has been dealt with by the servant's death. Wickedness, subjectively considered, calls for repentance. If we may say that chapter 54 details the objective God-given benefits of the servant's work, chapter 55 answers to its subjectivity and emphasizing the response which brings those benefits into personal experience. Meaning, the suffering servant has paid for sin. We can say, did Jesus pay for sin? And we would categorically absolutely say, amen, and it is finished, right? Jesus said that from the cross. It is done. The payment has been paid. But how do we actually get that? How do we actually walk in that? The the banquet feast has been set. How do we get in the door? Well, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. This is all that John is saying over and over and over and over. It's only through the person of Jesus. So if we don't turn to him, if we don't forsake our way, turn from our way and turn to him, this banquet sits uneaten. Because we don't get to come to the banquet when we're disinterested in the host. There is a condition to life eternal, and that condition is you have to believe. Right? He is calling. Come, everyone who thirsts. So the call is out there. But what he's asking is that we would turn from our way to his way. And then he doubles down on that in verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Your way will not suffice. You need to do things his way. And then he doubles down again. For the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return the the water to the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word be that goes from my mouth. So, So shall my word go that be from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. That's a reference, by the way, verse 10, 11 to verse 1. He's saying he's calling out invitation, and that call is going to land on people's ears who will believe and who will come and eat. It will be effective to God's purposes. So, a couple quick things. Verse 12 kind of wraps up for us this idea of peace, where you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. So two two applications here for two different audiences. One is, if you have not believed upon Jesus Christ for life, you must do so. There is no other way to have relationship with God, to be a part of the family, to be a part of the feast, to be in the fortress, than through faith 
in Jesus Christ. That's the first application. Second application is if you've already believed in Christ, one, I want to challenge you, two little, little subparts of the second challenge. One, I want to challenge you to go, look, to just say that you believe in him, to just say you believe in him is not the kind of faith we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody who believes in him and then walks in his way, right? This is the old faith without works thing. This is the old, we are saved by grace through faith in order to walk in the way that God, we are raised from the dead in order to live new life unto God. That's Romans, that's, I mean, it's all over the scriptures. This isn't just about sin forgiveness. This is about walking with God. So here's what I want to say. This shalom that God has for us, a lot of believers don't walk in this shalom. Because though they believe in Jesus and though they have a relationship with him, they kind of just will go back and forth and kind of actually just not actually take God up on the offer of trusting him and doing what he says. That's the irony of like, he's not trying to be oppressive. He's actually trying to be helpful. He built you. He designed you. He knows how you should walk. So when he says, don't sleep with people, and that, well, I'll be clear, don't have sexual relations with people who are not your spouse. He's not being mean. He's not trying to withhold something from us. He's saying, no, I have a design for that. That's supposed to happen in marriage for a specific purpose when you're married. And if you don't do that, again, which you have freedom, it's not going to go well. Paul actually says the guy who sins sexually, the woman who sins sexually, sins against his own body. Yeah, it's not good. Even there's statistics and research about, you know, the more partners we have, the less healthy it is for us. Now, hear me. We just started with a passage about how things can be broken and God fixes them, right? Broken family that he restores. So nothing's beyond lost, right? God can, God can redeem you. Turn to him. My point is, I'm illustrating, is that we need to trust to walk in his way. And here's the irony. When you walk in his way, there's peace, right? You may go, well, that'll be uncomfortable on Tuesday when I have that hard conversation. But, I mean, it's clear. All right. So, the two applications is believe upon Christ. And the second really is the same, which is for believers. Believe upon Christ, meaning trust him and what he says and walk in his way. So when you're confused, when God says to do this and you don't know why, I'm going to be real controversial. Wives, submit to your husbands, right? That's, uh, that's Ephesians 5. I'm just going to drop that in there. Oh gosh, is he going there? A little bit. Like, what does that mean? Let's sort it out. You know, there's a lot of people who do that poorly and it's terrible and whatever. But what does he mean by that? Is there something beautiful there? Yes. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Lay down your life for her. Is there something beautiful there? Yes. So we need to be a people who trust what he says, even when the world says, oh, I preach weddings where people are like, I cannot believe that you read Wives Submit to Your Husbands. I'm like, it's in here. Doesn't that give me a pass? Which culturally, by the way, it doesn't. Um, but, right? Like, I know it doesn't make sense to our culture, but it makes sense to God. And we got to wrestle through how to apply it. I, you know, I stirred up the pot a little now. But I'm willing to talk to you about it. I will say this. A lot of people who apply that apply it really poorly. They mean it by suppression of their wives or something. Uh-uh. Dudes, uh-uh. You know how many times I've told my wife, hey, do what I say. I've literally never said that. Nor would I. Yeah, survive, yeah. 
But there is a good way that I can love my wife and I can lead her well, where she feels cared for and protected and loved, right? There's a way of peace that she gets to experience when we both function well in our marriage. It's a beautiful thing. But we kind of toss those passages out because we're like, oh, that's too offensive. I wouldn't, how can we say that? It's the word of God. Let's wrestle through this. And the irony is the couples I see that walk in that, there's a lot more peace because they both are rested. I'm like, okay, God's got something good and beautiful in there. Now, some of you, I want to just say this. My last little caveat, we'll be done. If you're wrestling through that, we want to be honest too. Like some of you are wrestling going like, hey, you know, I've seen this done terribly, especially for some of you ladies in the room, fill out a connect card. Let's talk about it. I'm serious. Let's talk through this, right? There might be a way that you've experienced that that is not what God intends. There are a lot of people who do things quoting scripture that are terrible and are contrary to the ways of God. Just because you're saying the Bible doesn't mean you're walking with God, right? Satan quoted the scriptures against Jesus in Matthew 4, and it was literally demonic, right? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. And Lord, we need help with this. We, we often come in and we, we go kicking and screaming because we, we, we don't trust you. And what you're saying is to trust you. So Lord, would you help us to turn our lives over to you, to be saved, that we would actually say, Lord, I need you. I need you to make me a part of the family. I need you to, to give me citizenship in this, in this new city. I need you to bring me to the feast. I need you, I need you, I need you. That is what you want the cry of our hearts to be, not, well, I guess. Lord, would you help us to walk in that? And as we do, Lord, we praise you. We don't even have to ask. We praise you that you give peace when we walk in your ways. God, help my own heart to want to walk more in your ways, to distrust my own longings, my own desires, my own logic, and to trust more in you, Lord. Help us to walk in your ways because your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and we praise you that you invite us to the banquet. Would we delight in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.